How's it going, Nashville? This is the Nashville Fitness Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Chris Beavers, where we will unpack all things health and wellness. We will clear up common myths, highlight amazing fitness opportunities, and bring you guys the best information about health here in the great city of Nashville. Uh, welcome to the latest episode of the Nashville Fitness Podcast. Uh, today, we've got the privilege of hanging out with uh, Dr. Clark Holmes. Uh, Dr. Holmes is a board-certified sports medicine physician here in the Nashville area, and he also owns Impact Sports Medicine and Orthopedics. Uh, Dr. Holmes has been a great wealth of uh, knowledge to me and my patients over uh, the last several months, and uh, so we're lucky to have him hanging out with us. So, Dr. Holmes, thanks so much for uh, hanging out with us. Chris, man, great to be here, especially on a Friday afternoon where we got this COVID pandemic going on, but I applaud you for doing this. I mean, I think podcasts, they're already here to stay, but they're going to really take off. And, and uh, I love your uh, entrepreneurial and innovative spirit to kind of share, share, uh, share some stories and we can talk a little bit and talk medicine and talk life. And, and uh, hopefully the listeners will enjoy what we have to say. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's what I love about, about the podcast opportunity. You know, it's just a good time to you know, get some information to you guys. And, and I obviously know that you're a wealth of knowledge out there, but other folks don't. And so it's just a good opportunity, like I said, to get that out there. So that's great. Dr. Holmes, tell us a little bit about you and kind of your background and how you got interested in medicine and, and all those good things. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, well, I've been a doc 22 years, Chris, and it's, it's been a joy and a privilege. You know, I was first introduced to medicine at a family friend that was an orthopedic surgeon. And, you know, they'd come over and hang out. And I just kind of love picking his brain. And he was a guy I admired. And finally, he opened the door for me to be introduced to orthopedics. And, you know, by the age 15, I think I said, you know, I think I want to be a doc and uh, anatomy <laughs> physiology was appealing to me. I really liked the sciences. I was an athlete. I was not, you know, superstar stud athlete, but could hold my own playing a little uh, third base and pitching and baseball. And there you go. And, uh, you know, athletics was a huge part of my life growing up. So orthopedics, sports medicine really meshed well, the care of the human body, the musculoskeletal system, and then a way to make a living doing it and making a difference in others' lives. So, you know, went to college, majored in biology, headed to med school immediately after. I'm originally from Mississippi. Uh, got, I felt like excellent training there. And then headed down to Tallahassee, Florida for uh, a residency. And then up to finally Muncie, Indiana, where uh, Ball State is located. And at the time, in the early 2000s, they had an excellent fellowship. It was primarily orthopedic-based. And we got a wealth of experience working with private practice orthopedic surgeons, had a great faculty mentorship. And then we got to work with schools like Ball State, Anderson University, and something up there called the Human Performance Lab, which was a great kind of sports physiology program. So, you know, that's, that's my background. And, and uh, you know, I've had a few job stops along the way, but landed in Nashville in uh, 2009. Nice. How did you end up here in Nashville? Great question. So... How much time do you have, Chris? <laughs> as long as you want, my friend. Yeah. All right. So um, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was the director of sports medicine at Georgetown University. And great job. I always had a passion to work with college athletes. And my first gig coming out of fellowship was in Mississippi at the orthopedic surgery department. Loved it. Great folks there. But I just wasn't doing day-to-day -day college athletics like I really wanted to do. When I came out of fellowship, that was my passion. So an opportunity opened up, went to Georgetown, director of sports medicine, wore a lot of hats there, really worked with student athletes in the student health center. I was a head team physician, worked in the athletic department, and then worked in the orthopedic uh, surgery department 
there at uh, Georgetown University Medical Center. So great job, right? 700 athletes, 29 sports teams here in the South. You know, we're not that familiar with teams like crew and swimming and diving as much. Uh, field hockey, those were some of the teams. Uh, Georgetown's not as well known for football, but we had one AA football. Uh, of course, the flagship sport there is basketball. And, right. Uh, you know, everybody knows about Hoya basketball. And so, That's right. You know, it was a great gig. We went to the Final Four. I wore a lot of hats. But being straight with you, when you're in academics, you wear a lot of hats. There's a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy. And uh, after seven, eight years in academic practices, I said, you know what? I think I'm ready for private practice. You know, I, yeah. I've got an itch to really be my own boss. I'm an itch to kind of have my own schedule, do things a little bit more of my way. And uh, so in 2009, the traffic in D.C. had beat me down. The cost <laughs> of living had worn me out. And it's a great place to live, I think, for a short period of time. And no offense to anybody that's from that area or claims that to be their home or favorite spot, but I just couldn't see myself and my family there long term. I remember at the time my kids were ages five and three. It was another Saturday. I was headed down to cover another sporting event, which is how you spent most of your nights and weekends. And he kind of tugged on my shirt and said, hey, Dad, you got to work another Saturday. Oh, man. Kind of really tugged at my heart there as well. And I was like, all right, I think that was, that was the impetus I needed to make a move. And so yeah. um, my lovely wife, Christy, had lived here two stints as a single woman when we were dating. And I was uh, in Indiana. She was in Nashville. We'd come down during our courtship and always loved Nashville. It's kind of that small town feel with big city options. That's a Southern charm, four seasons of weather at the time, cost of living and uh, traffic <laughs> wasn't too bad. And you brought it with you. Apparently that has changed a bit. <laughs> I brought that with me from DC. And so that was my, uh, that was the door opening to come to Nashville. Uh, at the time, my family was in Mississippi. My wife's family was still in the, in the DC area. We could still reach them via car or a quick flight. And uh, we felt like, hey, perfect fit. She had some existing relationships and friends here. And I joined a private practice that was kind of a small four-man group. There was just one owner. And within three years, he retired. And I said, hey, I've got a clientele built up. I've been very fortunate to have patients knock on my door. I'm 40 years old at that time. If I'm ever going to open a private practice, it is here and now. And so nice. the birth of Impact Sports Medicine Orthopedics in 2012. That's great. That's great. You know, what other things did you feel, you know, just besides your entrepreneurial desire or, or this kind of tugging at you, what other things led you to, to say, I'm going to start my own practice? Yeah, I mean, Chris, you can probably feel this way because you're in a similar boat, you know, being an entrepreneur. There's just something – awesome about having latitude in medicine to practice the way you want to. And we all have to follow a standard of care. We have to practice with honesty, integrity, but no one tells me how much time I can spend with a patient. No one says, Hey doc, you got to see this many patients per day. No one says, you know, you can or can't do this procedure or you have to do this many procedures. No one tells me what insurances I can and can't accept. Uh, if we're billing cash payments for something or people don't have insurance, I get to decide how we take care of those people. If patients need a payment plan, you know, we have to relax uh, how we bill them. We can do that. So autonomy was really the key. And I wanted to practice medicine from a medical and a business side that I felt like was congruent with who I am as a person. 
and it was going to be very pleasing and affordable to the patient. And I wanted to have a happy work-life balance. And I think we're all trying to achieve that. And, you know, employed physicians do a fantastic job. I admire them on a lot of fronts, but they don't necessarily get that same autonomy. And, uh, you know, I think I'd been a doc maybe 10 years at the time. And I said, time for autonomy. And, uh, so that kind of spurred me to private practice and I kind of like business as well. I mean, I like numbers and I like, yeah. you know, I like overseeing and being a leader uh, within a small setting. And if you're in private practice, you got to learn the business of medicine as well. You can't just focus completely on patients. And there's a part of me that really desired to further my knowledge there. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think you're spot on talking about, you know, patient autonomy. I sympathize with that as well. I mean, that's exactly why, you know, I ventured out of my own practice is I feel like that autonomy piece, uh, it just helps us serve patients well. And, and like you say, I don't have somebody telling me what I can and can't do. And, and patients are going to get my best knowledge. Or if I don't know, I'm going to get them to somebody or, or research like heck to find out what is going to be best for these people. So that that's awesome. And, and, and that you're, you're finding that in your practice as well. So let's talk about what makes your practice different. You know, you've got all kinds of great things that uh, you focus on uh, that I think that it's important our listeners here. So tell us a little bit about that and what makes you different. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, first and foremost, the patient comes first and I try to see the patient as a person, not just a body part, Chris. And so you come see me, you're not, you're not Chris, the knee, you're Chris Beavers, the person, you know, I want to get to know you a little bit, you know, tell me about your desires, Tell me about your problem. Let me get to know a little bit about your family, your job. How's this problem impacting you as a person, not just the pain and the symptoms that go with it? So whole person care, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are, you know, treating every part of your body every time you come in. And I don't claim to necessarily be a mental health professional, but I do kind of love linking what's going on with your mental health and mind-body connection as well. So we're going to spend a good bit of time with you. I hope no patient ever feels rushed when they come see me. I don't double book my appointments. I spend a longer amount of time with the patient. Number two, I put a great emphasis on trying to be an excellent diagnostician. And so, you know, I want to know what the problem is. We're not just, once again, treating symptoms. We're trying to get to the root of what the problem is. Let's give you a specific diagnosis, or at least what we call a differential diagnosis, which means here's two, three, four things that could be the source of your problem. Number three, we're going to work as a team. Uh, most of what we do in orthopedics and sports medicine is elective, and there are a lot of ways to go about treating different problems. Rarely is there just one way to treat it. Myself and the patient, we're going to partner. You know, I want you to make, you and I to make a joint decision. It's not me making an authoritarian decision. You know, I am here to guide you, help you, to lead you, but I'm not, I'm not necessarily your boss. Your body, you're just <laughs> work as a team. Uh, Next, just how I practice medicine. I mean, my, my niche is really non-surgical orthopedics or minimally invasive procedures. And so I, I initially trained with a primary care background and then kind of morphed into being a sports medicine doctor through additional subspecialty training. And then I've become what we may call an orthopedic interventionalist. Uh, some people out there may know, they may have heard the term interventional cardiologist. Those are the doctors that do the stents put pacemakers in sometimes, do the angioplasties. You've heard about interventional radiologists. Those are the doctors that do spinal injections. They may drain certain parts of the body. Well, I've become pretty much an interventional orthopedist. And so we do a lot of office procedures, but we're not necessarily working on the big surgeries. 
So I feel like I can look at the whole person, be a good diagnostician, partner with the patient, focus primarily on the non-surgical treatments, but we have tools in the toolbox to do these minimally invasive procedures. Uh, in my practice, I use musculoskeletal ultrasound on a daily basis, and that's for diagnostic purposes, as well as for all the injections we do. So injections are somewhat of a niche. That includes, uh, or a lot of the procedures I do do include those office injections. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, there's so much good stuff that you just talked about there. I mean, one of which saying, hey, I'm treating a patient as a whole. I think that that's something that is so easy to, to look over. You know, when, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've had patients talk to me about, hey, man, I went and saw this doc, like they spent five minutes with me, you know, told me to stop doing this, shot me up with something and sent me out the door. And then it's a, an authoritarian type thing, right? Like I'm, I'm coming to you and they're, they're laying the hammer down of, of, hey, here's my option and that's it. Versus I can't tell you how many times, I, you know, we've shared patients and they've come back and said, Dr. Holmes gave me three, four, five options. And it's like, I didn't feel like, hey, I was rushed. I didn't feel like I, I was just shoved out the, the, the door with, hey, this is his way or the highway. And uh, I love it. And that goes back to our, our whole thing of this is why you went into private practice, right? To have that, that autonomy to do so. Absolutely. Well, let, hey, can I take a break and ask you a question real quick? Please hit me. <laughs> well, you know, you are in a similar situation I am. You know, we're kind of small practice, pra uh, private practice business owners. Since you've made the transition, what doors is it open for you in terms of how you treat a patient? Oh, the exact same thing that you're saying, right? Like I can, I don't have three or four other patients running around in an hour. Instead, I've got an entire hour to spend with, with patients. And it's, it's pretty rare to I, I think of very few settings where you're going to get 30 plus minutes with, with a, a provider in any capacity. And so to be able to sit down and, and not be rushed and it's like, Hey, I've got a whole hour to sit here and watch somebody move and understand what their problem is. Or, you know, you start talking sports specific stuff. Hey, you got pain with running. It, it provides an opportunity to say, or, you know, the, the, a common example, Hey, I've got pain at mile five. Well, it's like, all right, well, why don't you get here a few minutes early, warm up a little bit, and then it's like, hey, we're going to pull a camera out and understand why at mile five does your knee start hurting? You know what I mean? We start correlating that with their with their problem or deadlifts or overhead lifting. It's the same thing. It's like, well, if you have back pain with deadlifting, we need to understand why from a biomechanical standpoint do you have that issue? And so I think it's the biggest, just correlating it back to, to what it is. And then, like you said, listening to the whole story of the patient. I, mean, I spend 20 minutes just sitting talking to somebody and it, and it may seem casual, like, Hey, I'm just kind of shooting the breeze with them a little bit, but it, it allows me to understand, Hey, what are their goals long-term? What do they want to get back to doing? And uh, you know, what is the story of this problem? Because five minutes of something you filled out on a form is not going to be enough to, to get a, a full history from a patient. So time, I think is the biggest element. Chris, I mean, that you're perfectly stated. I'm impressed with your approach there. I really am. I mean, you're, wise beyond your years. And, uh, you know, how can you not spend an hour with a patient and not get to know them? And like right. I said, that encompasses, I'm going to get to know you as a person, not just a body part, not as a symptom. Yeah, it's, and, and that's the other thing too. I mean, that's why I became a PT. It's like, hey, PTs spend time with patients more than many other providers in many cases, right? We're seeing people on a recurrent basis. And I think life at the end of the day is about quality relationships and, and to be able to, to establish that with, with a, a patient. Sometimes you end up seeing family members. Uh, it's just a lot of fun, you know. Well stated, my man. What else <laughs> you got? Uh, uh, so let's, you know, we talked about, you were talking about injections a little bit. Tell me a little bit about some of the injections. I know you do some PRP stuff and some other, uh, you know, orthobiologics. Tell me about those. 
Yeah, so you hit the nail on the head. The medical term we like to use is orthobiologics. Ortho, think orthopedics. Biologic, think about some type of native tissue or some type of native solution, meaning it's more of a natural state and it's there to try to help improve a problem. So orthobiologics is a big category and probably the most common subset within that is platelet-rich plasma or what we call PRP. So, you know, you think about what's in the blood. You got plasma, you got red blood cells, you got white cells, and then platelets are contained within the plasma. Uh, platelets help our blood to clot. That's how most of us know about them, but they're also very naturally rich in our own growth factors. So our body has all these different growth factors that serve all these different functions. But in orthopedics, we think a lot of these growth factors play a nice role in modulating inflammation, meaning keeping it long-term, down low. So, you know, for example, a cortisone or an anti-inflammatory, like an oral steroid or injectable steroid, can knock out inflammation in a hurry. It's almost like you, know, you get a spike of sugar when you eat, uh, eat a cookie. Well, PRP is gonna modulate inflammation over the long-term. And so we're using growth factors to modulate inflammation by virtue of that, we reduce pain, we improve function. Now there's some tissues, soft tissues like tendons, ligaments, muscles that may actually heal and heal in a more rapid fashion, a more efficient fashion, a more complete fashion with introduction of PRP. Uh, in the setting of an arthritic joint, we're probably not necessarily healing cartilage structures. We certainly don't make any sweeping guarantees about healing a meniscus tear or articular cartilage, which is the cartilage that covers a bone. But that tissue tends to break down over time. And so you come in, you got an arthritic knee, we know four to 6% cartilage loss per year. So this is a breakdown situation. And if we can introduce growth factors to an arthritic joint and put a stop sign on that deterioration process, we're accomplishing a lot. Let me give you an example, Chris. Let's say you had an 18 year old, he tears his ACL, okay? Uh, he's got bone bruising, he tore the ACL, maybe he had a very small meniscus tear. ACL reconstruction is an excellent surgery, really good surgery, not one I do. My orthopedic surgery colleagues do a fantastic job with that. I've got a couple in my office that excel at that. It's shown to be a very good surgery. The problem is there's a good bit of damage done at the time of the injury, right? And so if you look at most studies, 12 years after an ACL tear, what percentage of people you think have arthritis? about 50%. Wow. So, so an 18 year old, do the math. He's 30. There's a 50% chance he's got arthritis. You got a 30 year old with knee arthritis. Now he may or may not feel it. He may or may not be symptomatic, but probably another subset, maybe another 50% are symptomatic. And we've got to do something with a 30 year old with arthritis. Wow. What do you do? Well, it's probably not bad enough to need a knee replacement. Of course we can do traditional tr treatment measures, which we should a good rehab physical therapy program. You know, maybe medications are appropriate for a short period of time, bracing, activity modification, all the things we do with a lot of our, our typical conditions are plan A. But what about plan B or C? That's where something like PRP can really come into play. And I think we're gonna see more platelet-rich plasma use, being used in younger individuals for preventive, for really preventative purposes to keep joints from further deterioration. Now, PRP really got its start probably 10, 15 years ago in the setting of tennis elbow or lateral epicondylitis, which is you know a tendon problem, of course, on the outside of the elbow. So in my practice, we use it for tennis elbow, golfer's elbow, Achilles problems, 
uh, plantar fasciitis, patellar tendinopathy, rotator cuff. Uh, casing, we use it for larger muscle tears. We can use it for some ligament injuries like MCL, medial collateral ligament of the knee. You can use it for ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow. That's the one that uh, often requires the Tommy John surgery for some pitchers. Uh, and then we'll use a lot for knee arthritis. That's probably the number one way I'm using PRP now. And five years ago, I probably had to look a patient in the eye, Chris, and I'd say, yeah, it's probably considered experimental. There's not a lot of data on it. If you do a Google search or a PubMed search, you will find a ton of studies now on PRP and knee arthritis. And yeah. Most of them show a high degree of benefit. It's a very low risk procedure. Think about it, we're using your natural healing agents or at least your natural growth factors to do something healthy for your joint, tendon, ligament. So I love PRP. I jumped on that bandwagon about 10 years ago. Would kind of like to think that I'm more of a pioneer and a leader in that, uh, that field of medicine, at least in the Nashville area. Because, uh, and you tweak it. It's really an art to PRP. It's a combination of art and science. The art comes into play with what PRP system we're using. How much blood do we draw? How many injections? You know, in my practice, should you use ultrasound to do the injection? Absolutely. You're making sure you're getting it in the right spot with the minimum, uh, least amount of risk. So that's just a little primer on PRP. And so orthobiologic injections are here to stay. And I'd kind of say, if you're in the world of sports medicine of orthopedics and you don't start using these, you're going to be left behind. Yeah. How come you think more, more folks aren't using them? I mean, I feel like I'm starting to hear more and more about it as well and starting to see, you know, more folks using it, but it's still, I mean, I would, I bet you if I ask most patients, everyone thinks stem cells, things like that, but, but PRP is becoming super common. Well, why don't you think more people are using it? Great question. I think that's multifactorial. I think first there's still a subset of doctors uh, that are not doing it. And so patients get their, they get their information from doctors. And if I had to estimate, I'd say maybe, a third to half of orthopedic physicians are doing some orthobiologic injections. So still the majority are probably not. So that's one wow. reason. Uh, number two, I mean, let's be real. I mean, for an orthopedic surgeon, they have great training and they were trained to do surgery on a lot of things. And like I said, a lot of them are very talented and there's some excellent orthopedic surgeries out there. But a lot of the conditions that come to my office are in that gray zone. Maybe surgery is the right idea for them. Maybe it's not. It's a condition maybe they could do as well without surgery. Uh, and then there's some conditions that surgery is really just not the right answer. Uh, and then honestly, you tear your ACL. Yeah, ACL reconstruction is the better idea than a PRP injection. Um, you have a full thickness rotator cuff tear and you're 45. Surgery is the better choice. But there's just a lot of things in the gray zone. But you know, you kind of have to have an interest in it to promote it to your patients. Uh, number two, it's not covered by insurance. And, uh, you know, there's some wiggle room there of how much doctors can and will charge for this. And referring back to our earlier point, I try to be as fair as, and reasonable as possible. I mean, we're paying for our equipment, we're paying for our time, we're paying for the procedure. Uh, and so we're asking patients to pay a reasonable amount for that. I mean, I'll just give you an example. Most of our PRP injections range between six dollars and $750. Now, that's nothing to sneeze at, but for most people, they can handle that, especially if they're thinking long-term benefit. Maybe this is saving me visits to the doctor. Uh, maybe it's saving me a surgery. And then some people will pay anything to improve their quality of life. 
And so, you know, it's kind of hard to put a price on quality of life at times. That's, that's the truth. Yeah. And then, you know, there does need to be more data, Chris. Uh, and like I said, it's really, that data has really risen for knee arthritis. We need more data on some of the other conditions. There's good data on gluteal tendinopathy. Uh, there's good data on tennis elbow. Uh, like I said, good data on knee arthritis. There's some pretty good data on rotator cuff, pretty good data on hip arthritis. Uh, and we'll do it for some things where there's just not a lot of data. I mean, I'll do it for hand arthritis and you're just not going to find it in the medical literature very often about being treated, uh, treating hand arthritis with PRP, but I've done it enough to know that it helps the majority of people. That's awesome. Last would be that you have to stop or you probably should stop anti-inflammatories a week before and two weeks after, at least that's my protocol. We think that anti-inflammatories may impede the healing mm -hmm. cascade or the healthy type of inflammatory cascade we're initially creating with these platelets. And so, unfortunately, some patients really need their NSAIDs. Maybe they're 65. They've got knee arthritis, hip arthritis. They've got degeneration in their lumbar spine. And getting them off an NSAID can be a very painful, painful situation. And, uh, and so some people just kind of shudder at the thought of, hey, doc, I got to be off my NSAID for three weeks. I don't think I can do it. Let's find another option for me. Right. Well, I think it's, again, it goes back to our whole story of let's get the whole patient story. What is it that we can we can do for them? So let's talk about uh, you know ultrasound guided versus non ultrasound guided. I know you're using ultrasound, uh, which is which is key. I, I never want an injection or uh, to be given an injection or, or any of my patients to be given an injection outside of ultrasound. So tell us why that's important and, and kind of your process with that. Yeah, I jumped on board that about ten years ago when I was uh, part of a fellowship faculty and they were really getting into it. So I was fortunate enough to really jump into their courses and. You know, by within a year or so, I've done about six courses on it. You know, it's the same technology that's been used for a long time to look at the fetus of a pregnant woman. So you can you can connect with that a little bit right now. Right. And, uh, <laughs> your life situation, not to give anything too far away, but, you know. <laughs> Come, coming uh, soon. Yeah, coming soon. Can't wait to, to see how fatherhood treats you. Uh, but, you know, it's a great entity for looking at fluid collections like joint swelling, it's a great entity for looking at cysts like ganglion cysts, hematomas. It's awesome for looking at a lot of tendons. It's fantastic for looking at the Achilles, the lateral elbow tendon, medial elbow tendon. It's a good option for rotator cuff. It's pretty good for gluteal tendons on the outside of the hip. And so you can really look at the fibers. You can detect tears. You can detect tendinosis. You can detect, uh, detect bursitis, which often sits around a tendon. And then one really cool thing is you can look at abnormal blood flow to a tendon. And when you see abnormal blood flow, you're either thinking heavy inflammation or you're thinking long-term damage. You know, there's a phenomenon called neovascularization where in unhealthy tendons, blood vessels form. And that's really a cool thing ultrasound can show you. Now, one of the best things about ultrasound also is you can immediately compare it to the other side. And so sometimes you're trying to get a feel for the patient's tissue and you say, you know, this is a little unusual looking. I think this is some sign of pathology. Hey, let me throw my ultrasound on the, the left elbow and compare. So immediate comparison can be done in the office. It's pain-free, radiation-free, and it is a fraction of the cost of an MRI. So That's great. MRI is usually the average person. You're going to run five or 600 bucks if you have not met your deductible. Uh, I get paid typically about 30 or 40 bucks for a musculoskeletal ultrasound. 
Wow. And in some ways, I'm happy about that. I mean, as a business owner, obviously, I would be lying if I said we wouldn't want to be reimbursed more than that. <laughs> but look, I mean, that's great for the patient. And uh, you're talking about 30, 40 bucks versus five or 600. Now, I still use MRIs a lot. They still play a role. MRIs are great for looking at the whole joint, for looking at cartilage structures like a meniscus or a labrum. Uh, it's good for finding, uh, you know, bone marrow edema and stress fractures. But when it comes to tendons and fluid collections, the plantar fascia, uh, some muscular tissue, muscle tears in the calf and the hamstring, it is hard to beat ultrasound. And it's just a learned art. It's just like everything else. It's a skill set that you have to develop. It takes a good bit of time. You should take courses and then you got to purchase the technology and, you know, buying an ultrasound is like buying a luxury car. So <laughs> my, my assistant tells me, uh, or tells everybody that comes off, he said, that's Dr. Holmes's baby. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I, I love ultrasound, you know, it's kind of like the American express card. Don't leave home without it. Uh, you know, if I was picking up going somewhere else, my ultrasound is going with me. Now, that's awesome. Long-winded answer. Sorry about that, but we got no, that's great. ultrasound guided injections. What are we doing? A, we're hitting the spot that we want to hit, right? So it's that simple. Accuracy. There have been numerous studies that show ultrasound guided injections far more accurate than blind injections. Now, most orthopedic doctors have developed a proficiency at doing knee joint injections, right? Well, if you look at the blind knee joint injection, Success rate hitting the right spot about 70, 75%. Uh, there are plenty of orthopedic physicians that tell you I'm 99%. <laughs> but trust me, when they've gotten in the studies, they've done cadaver studies, they've used dye to track where the fluid really went, they're missing probably about 25% of the time. So uh, ultrasound guided, you're going to miss probably less than 5% of the time. So that's advantage number one. Advantage number two. Anytime you stick a needle in the skin, there's a risk of hitting something you're not supposed to, a blood vessel, a nerve, bone, cartilage. We can see all those structures fairly well with the ultrasound. And so avoiding contact with those structures not only decreases the risk to the patient, it's less painful. And so, Chris, I can't tell you how many times we've gotten done with an injection and a patient says, was that it? There's <laughs> nothing like I thought it was gonna be. That's not too bad or I'd had it somewhere else, it was awful, this wasn't too bad. And there is such a fear factor with needles, right? And so what are our basic phobias in life? It's snakes and spiders and height, <laughs> public speaking and dying and you know, darkness and ghosts and needles. <laughs> so, right. I mean, there is a true needle phobia. It often goes back to a negative, negative experience you have with a needle at some time in your life whether as an adult or a child. So accuracy, much better with ultrasound. Now, accuracy usually translate into better results. And so there's certainly many studies that have shown, hey, blind injection versus ultrasound guided. Not only are we getting in the right spot, the success rate is higher. So higher success rate means happy patient, better outcomes. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And for them not to waste the time of, Hey, uh, maybe that, you know, did the injection work or not? And they're wandering around, well, you know, was the injection missed or, or, or and, and then like you say too, pain factor, I can't tell you how many patients I say, you know, if I notice a, a pretty significant joint swelling and, and it may be appropriate to send out, they're like, no, I don't want a, 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 any fluid removed from my knee because it hurts so bad. And like you said, they've got that negative connotation and, and the fact of, 
hey, I'm, I've got ultrasound guided. I know where I'm going. I think brings reassurance to a patient as well. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, tell me, uh, you know, just kind of spurred my thought. What's, you know, how are you separating yourself as a PT from a traditional physical therapist? Because we all know Nashville is a fantastic medical community. There's no shortage of physicians and physical therapists. But, I mean, I've gotten to know you some and a lot of things you do. But uh, give me a little more insight on what separates you from a lot of other PT practices. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing we pride ourselves on is, is hey, we're one-on-one for an hour. You know, we're not seeing uh, two or three other folks in the clinic at the same time. Again, back to what we talked about earlier, we're going to sit and and talk, get to know you as a person, understand what it is that you're trying to get back to, and and then diving into all of the the things that they they do. So, hey, you've got pain with running? We're looking at running. You've got pain with overhead press? Well, we need to understand. Obviously, this is depending on irritability and things like that. If someone's got a real red hot joint, we're not going to put them under uh, more lifting and more stress to that tissue. But uh, yeah, it just the you know the the option to look at what their problem is under the real life situation as close as we can mimic it. I mean, we see a lot of uh, a lot of athletes, a lot of CrossFit athletes, uh, folks trying to get back to sports and things like that, and, and we see a lot of that, and we start recognizing patterns, which which helps us get get great outcomes for our patients. And so, uh, our biggest thing and my biggest thing too is I, I want to empower patients. You know, I want to give them the tools to manage their symptoms on their own. I don't want to bring somebody into the clinic two, three, four times a week when, when I know, hey, attendance is going to take three or four weeks to, to start feeling better anyways. So if I can give somebody some tools to start managing that at home, getting their symptoms down, and then progressing them in some of these later stage, more sports-specific stuff. So it's a, it's a time saver to, to our patients, and, and it just kind of goes along with some of that biological healing that has to happen as well. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Hey, one thing I've noticed about you is you have a great social media presence and it just kind of solidifies what you just told me. You really want to empower your patients. You put a lot of great stuff on your Instagram page. You are demonstrating different phases of rehab. Uh, look, I mean, that says a lot about you. You're allowing the general public or anybody that follows you on Instagram to get, to get that information. You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I know a lot of people don't want to give that information away because they say, hey, I want you to come see me. You know, that's something you should be paying for. But that just says a lot about you, that you're willing to share your expertise in an open forum like social media, and you're empowering your patients. I'm sure a lot of your true patients come see you do go home with access to those videos. And that, like I said, probably saves them a lot of visits in the office. They're able to get high-quality care, but very cost-effective care from you. Yeah, and and you're spot on. But you know, as far as giving the, the videos away on Instagram and things like that, it's like, hey, if somebody can do two exercises and that's going to get rid of their shoulder pain, like they probably didn't need to come see me anyways. You know what I mean? If that completely got rid of their their pain quickly, because in some cases, hey, it's it's something small like that. It's been going on a week or two. We don't want to drag them into the clinic for something that's going to go away very quickly. Now. The, on the other end of the spectrum, you got some folks who want to ignore some pain for six, eight months, and then at that point, it's a problem. But if somebody's got something super-duper small and easy that's going to go away quickly with an exercise, that's great. I'm, I, that's awesome. Well, you're right. I mean, look, there is no substitute for in-person care, and I'm not, I'm not uh, suggesting that everybody do all their health care through just online videos. But once again, I do admire you for doing that because I think your videos are great. They're very informative. And you're very generous with your time to share those. Yeah, I appreciate that. Hey, got to get some information out there for the folks. And uh, it's, it's fun. So 
Uh, Dr. Holmes, let's let's talk briefly about we've talked about you know PRP and, and things like that. You know, cortisone is what most people associate with joint injections, and we've alluded to it a little bit already. Uh, would you mind kind of talking briefly about why you know we've talked about how PRP can help slow down you know inflammation from a long-term standpoint? Let's talk about cortisone and, and why it may be uh, you know, negative in some cases and why it's not indicated for everybody. Because I think that's what most people think. I'll just go get a cortisone injection from Doc and I'll be fine to go back to whatever I want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Good question. And just to, just to kind of clarify, I had a patient come in today that said, cortisone, what about a steroid injection? I said, well, it's the same thing. I mean, really, cortisone is kind of our slang term. You know, the medical term would be corticosteroid or a steroid injection, just so our our listeners know those essentially referring to the same thing. Steroids do have their role. They're very potent anti-inflammatories. They've been used for a long time in medicine, particularly orthopedics. For a long time, they were the go-to treatment for tendon problems, for swollen joints, for arthritis. And what we found is that a lot of orthopedic problems are not necessarily uh, heavy inflammation. Not all of osteoarthritis is necessarily inflammatory. Some of it is, some of it's not. We, you've heard us probably on this podcast alone talk about tendinosis or tendinopathy, not just tendinitis. Itis means inflammation. Uh, but so many of the tendon problems you and I probably treat are degeneration of the tendon. They are micro tears in the tendon. So the problem with cortisone or steroid is it ultimately can have a catabolic effect or a breakdown effect. Mm. And too many steroid injections are going to increase your risk of further tearing of a tendon, further joint degeneration. We talked about a lot of what arthritis is, is loss of articular cartilage. And we've seen in numerous studies, too many injections really lead to additional loss of that articular cartilage. So it becomes kind of a vicious cycle where you have pain, you get a cortisone shot, it temporarily relieves pain, but then your pain comes back, you get another cortisone shot. So we really don't want any patients to be in that vicious cycle. Now, there's still a time and a place for a steroid injection. And let me give you an example. You know, you come in, you're 75 years old, you got a swollen knee, you're going on a bucket list trip, you're going to on a cruise, and you got to feel better. Well, mm. let's drain that knee joint if we need to. We'll pull a steroid in, and people feel dramatically better, okay? And I've helped them achieve something they want to do for a short period of time. They enjoyed their cruise. It was a bucket list trip. They didn't have to think about their knee. You know, had a guy come in this week. He told me, I gave him a cortisone injection in his hip two months ago. He said it was a life-changing injection because it allowed him to lose 25 pounds. Oh, wow, that's great. He exercise. He could get out and move. And honestly, eventually, Chris, he's going to need a, knee, a hip replacement, and he's going to do well, but he's not ready for that yet, you know? And especially what we've been dealing with this pandemic, you know, a lot of elective surgeries were put on hold. And he's kind of a high-risk guy. He's not, you know, it's not good for him to be in the hospital right now. So that was a, a game-changing injection for him in terms of a steroid. Now, long-term, you know, I see patients, unfortunately, they come see me. They've had five injections for their tennis elbow. I throw my ultrasound on that tendon, and the tendon looks horrible. I mean, it's, you know, it looks like it's just gone through a meat grinder. And I'm like, I've got options for you. You know, I've got PRP. I've got a procedure I do called the 10X. Well, look, we got an uphill battle going here. You know, that was honestly probably too many steroid injections. It's had a long-term negative effect. And then there's some tendons we just never recommend steroids to be around. And that's Achilles, because we know Achilles is at high risk for rupture. Uh, patellar tendon can be a relatively high risk for rupture. 
So I just don't like steroids around those tendons. Uh, if you ever thought a bursitis was due to an infection, you never want steroids because those can suppress the immune system. So steroids have a time and a place. I'd be lying if I say I don't do them on a weekly basis, but you got to pick your battles. You got to be careful. You got to be wise. The patients have to be informed on the risk and the benefits. So a general rule with an arthritic joint is three or less. I try to stay well below that, and I try to steer patients you know, away from steroids if I can. And then tendons, most of the time, Chris, if I'm going to do a steroid at all for any tendon, it's one and done. And I think, uh, you know, I'm catching the tendon in an early phase where it's just tendonitis. You know, there are some cases of rotator cuff problems, tennis elbow, golfer's elbow, where we do catch it early. It's highly inflammatory, and a steroid will really help in the, uh, the recovery process. But more often than not, if I'm going to do a tendon with a steroid or a steroid injection on a tendon, it's one and done. That's great. That's great insight there. You know, speaking about tendons, we know, I know you do a lot of stuff with the 10X procedure as well. Let's talk, talk about your expertise with the 10X procedure. Yeah, 10X was a cool procedure developed about nine years ago. Uh, it was a dual kind of, uh, you know, two companies came together to put this together. One was the, the 10X company based out of uh, Northern California, and then a small little hospital system called the Mayo Clinic. Uh, perhaps a few of you have heard of that one. So <laughs> anytime you can do a procedure with the Mayo name attached to it, you feel like you're in good hands there. But the medical term for the 10X is a percutaneous tenotomy under the guidance of ultrasound. So percutaneous means through the skin. Uh, tenotomy means you're cutting or creating some you know, minor uh, procedure to a tendon. It can also be a percutaneous fasciotomy. You could do it, for example, on the plantar fascia. And ultrasound guidance means we're using ultrasound to guide us during this procedure. So 10X, when will we do this? Chris, you've worked with a, a patient. They've had six months of tennis elbow. They play pickleball. You know, you've worked your magic. You've gotten them 75% better, you know, but they still hurt. They can't shake a hand. They can't play more than two days in a row pickleball. They come to my office. I fill in the ultrasound. They've got a partial tear in that common extensor tendon. And they say, Doc, look, six months, you know, I've kind of hit a plateau. Chris did a great job with me, but, but I need some help. You know, I'm ready to get be back 100%. What can you do for me? I say, well, I've got this great minimally invasive procedure. Most of the time, it's going to be covered by insurance. We're going to take you to the operating room. We're not going to put you to sleep at all, okay? If you feel like you're going to be nervous, perhaps a Xanax or a Valium, just something to calm you down. 90% of patients don't need that. Most patients are wide awake. They get to sing, dance, uh, you know, tell stories. We'll talk. We'll get to know each other while we're doing the procedure. We give them a numbing shot of lidocaine only. Yeah, some people call that Novocaine. That's the only anesthesia you require. One minute later, I make a tiny incision. It's usually the length of a fingernail. And I go in with a little pin-like probe. It's got a needle tip on it. We call it the TX1 or TX2 handpiece, depending on how long we need it to be. Under the guidance of ultrasound, we go to the damaged tissue, which on ultrasound looks often like a dark spot, what we call a hypoechoic signal. We deliver that little probe right to the damaged part of the tendon. It's connected to a console. We activate a foot pedal, almost like you would be playing the organ. We move <laughs> the probe back and forth. While that probe is in the tendon, it uses ultrasonic energy to cut out the damaged part of the tendon microscopically. 
So it's like a tiny little blade extracting the unhealthy part of the tendon. I often say it's like using a butter knife to slice off the bruised part of a banana. So tendon tissue that's damaged is kind of mushy. Healthy tissue is more firm. This procedure is not strong enough and the tip is not harsh enough to cut healthy tissue. So we're minimally invasive. The actual treatment time, Chris, is usually two minutes or less. Oh, wow. It's some stop and start. We reposition. It's irrigating as we're going. So it's flushing out. It's sucking out the damaged tissue microscopically, two minutes or less. Once we're done, we don't have to put stitches in. We flush out the irrigation fluid. We hold pressure, get a little bleeding to stop. We put a little pressure bandage on there. No stitches required. If it's your elbow, you get a compression sleeve and a wrist splint. Usually an uh, hour or so, hour and a half after you arrived at the surgery center, you were going home. A lot of patients drive themselves home if they want to. So That's awesome. Success rate is in the range of 90 to 95%. Now, there are some restrictions. We try not to let people lift. If we're doing an elbow, you don't lift over five pounds for six weeks. Some form of rehab is required afterwards. It's usually pretty basic rehab. Uh, a small percentage will come back and see a guy like you. Most of them have already had PT and don't have to do a long, uh, really involved PT program afterwards. Uh, my athletes that play golf, tennis, pickleball, uh, weightlifters, crossfitters, we try to hold them out for at least three months. So there is some degree of patience required the scar is barely visible, usually by the time you get to that three-month mark. So it's a great procedure. I've been doing it, Chris, for eight or nine years. I can't confirm this, but I'm pretty confident I've done more than anybody in Middle Tennessee. <laughs> uh, and I love it. And so we use it for tennis elbow, golfer's elbow, patellar tendinopathy, plantar fasciitis, Achilles problems. Um, it has been used for the rotator cuff and the tendons on the outside of the hip. I just hadn't dove into that for a few reasons. I feel like that may be a lower success rate with those areas, but I love it for tennis elbow. I love it for plantar fasciitis. It's not a plan A for people, Chris. It's a plan B, C, or D. Uh, but it's a great procedure because you don't have to disrupt a lot of healthy tissue to get to the unhealthy tissue. As I mentioned, it's not really injuring uh, the unhealthy tissue. We talked about with musculoskeletal ultrasound, we can see nerves, blood vessels, other structures we're not supposed to be hitting, so we can avoid that. The complication rate is exceedingly low. Bleeding, nerve damage, infection, almost unheard of, knock on wood. But it's a great procedure, and I'm really happy with it. Now, we always carefully choose who's a good candidate, but I would say 90% of the time, you know, if a patient comes to me and asks me about that procedure, they've already done the reading, perhaps another doctor, a physical therapist, or Dr. Google has already prepped them <laughs> about this procedure, and we usually go for it. And uh, I'm, I've been really happy with the results, and I look forward to continuing to offer that to the patients. Yeah, and speaking of the scar, I mean, it is so small. I mean, many times you're like, there's nothing here. It's crazy and fascinating how how you can get in there and into the damaged tissue and leave minimal scar. You know, it's just crazy to me. Every time I see one, I'm shocked. Other thing I'd add is, is post-procedure pain is really pretty mild. I would say half the patients take Tylenol. 
Half patients go home with a true pain medication, Chris, and those that have to take it, take it for one to three days. Wow. And what's really gratifying is those with more severe tennis elbow, they hurt all the time. It hurts to open a door, to shake a hand, even hold their coffee mug. And what we found, you know, tennis elbow, it's not always about force, it's sometimes about arm position. And right. so you can see some pretty miserable people and within two weeks, they're out of the miserable stage. They still have to heal. They still have to heal. And we really think the 10X works three or four ways. The main way is cleaning up that dead, damaged, necrotic, you know, unhealthy tissue. But we also think by irrigating the tissue and sucking out that irrigation fluid, or what we call aspiration, that we're kind of getting rid of the unhealthy inflammation that's sitting around that damaged tissue. Third, we mentioned abnormal blood flow to a lot of unhealthy tissue. Well, what always runs next to blood vessels? Nerves. And I'm not talking about nerves that innervate muscle or give you strength. I'm talking about nerves that make you feel pain. Hmm. So how many times have you heard patients that have tennis elbow, golfer's elbow, Achilles, and they say, it burns. It burns. And you're thinking, there's got to be a nerve component to this pain. Well, there is. But these are small little cutaneous you know, nerves or nerves right next to the tendon, that all they do is make you have pain. They're not really serving any, any valuable purpose. And so we think that the 10X may kind of deaden or ablate those nerves. The last way is by probing the tendon, we stimulate a healing response. So don't think of it as, hey, we've cut out 50% of a tendon. We've taken out 10, 15, 20% of a tendon that's really causing you pain. But by probing the tendon, we allow healthy tendon to kind of fill in. And so, although we know tendons heal relatively slowly, there is a healing component. But point being, you can get people out of a miserable stage within a few weeks, and then they're in a healing stage, and over weeks to months, they really see a nice benefit. That's great. That's fantastic. It's a, it's a great procedure. Dr. Holmes, last question for you. When is it time to come see you versus, versus kind of the wait-and-see approach? I get asked this all the time. Uh, of, you know, people people will sweep injuries under the rug for quite some time. They think they'll go get kind of poor advice or, or they'll just kind of get told to stop doing whatever it is they want to do, uh, yeah. you know, be it CrossFit, be it running, whatever. So when is, you know, when, is, when do you delineate that? Yeah. You know, first advice I'd say, Chris, is have yourself a few trusted resources. It could be a physician, it could be a physical therapist, maybe an athletic trainer. But, you know, don't get, too, don't get your information from too many resources. You know, your friend, your neighbor, let them be your friend and your neighbor. They don't necessarily have to be your medical advisor. You know, and there's no substitute for in-person health care. So I'd say, look, if you have moderate to severe pain, it's time to seek medical attention immediately. If you have mild, persistent pain, you know, more than a week or two, time to seek medical attention. If you've got long-standing episodic pain, which means it's not that severe, you know, when it's not there every moment of every day, but it's been going on six months, it's time to seek medical attention. Look, if you have anxiety about what's going on, there's a strong mind-body connection that I believe in. There can be some either reassurance or just stress reduction of getting an expert in that field to provide you with medical information. And maybe it's not the news you always want to hear. It's not always good news. We can't sugarcoat, you know, all of our medical data, but... <laughs> or probably you wouldn't because you're in the business, but how many people just feel better just to get an answer? You know? So true. Exactly the answer they want. 
you know, we have to deliver, hey, you've got pretty severe arthritis or you've got a torn tendon or you've got a stress fracture, but you'll just see the stress flow out of their body right before your eyes. Like, okay, I feel better. Now we have an answer. Now we have a plan of action. I'm not crazy. I knew there was a reason why I was hurting. Um, you know, if you're relying on a lot of over-the-counter medication, you're popping the Advil, you're popping, you know, the Aleve and the Tylenol, the supplements, and you're not getting much better, it's time to seek medical attention. Even if you are getting better with that medication, you can't be on that forever, or nor should you. Um, I had a patient very honest with me this week. She said, I've been drinking a lot. You know, I'm stressed because of the pandemic, and I'm having a lot of pain. I've been hitting the booze pretty hard. And she was honest with me and I appreciated her honesty. And I said, you know, we're going to find a better way than alcohol to get you better. And we shared a laugh over it, but there's a harsh reality to that, that we have to take seriously that uh, a lot of our patients are turning to things they shouldn't be turning to, to try to relieve pain, whether it be physical or emotional. So long story short, Chris, I am a believer in early medical intervention for so many reasons, but on the other hand, I realize people don't want to run to the doctor for everything. In Tennessee, as you well know, direct access to a physical therapist is not a bad way to start. You know, tell me, tell me the laws about that. Refresh my memory. What are the laws on direct access? Yeah, so we can have we can see a patient uh, 30 days without a referral from a, a physician, uh, which gives us a great snapshot, right? You know, we're catching an injury. You know, usually allows us to catch an injury pretty acute in many cases. I know a lot of the cases I get are very acute. And maybe they tweak their knee or their shoulder at the gym. So we're able to see these patients for, for 30 days without a referral. And then at that point, we, we can make the decision of, you know, hey, many times some of these acute injuries clean up very quickly and maybe they don't need treatment after that. And in some cases, if it is something that's a bit more severe, you know, a tendon issue that's, that's still nagging a little bit, we send them off to you guys, let them take a, take a look and kind of clear up, make sure there's nothing other serious things going on. And then we continue on down the path. And, and, and instead of somebody dealing with pain for six months to a year, and then it takes six months to get better, something that can be done in 30 days in many cases. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. I love that. I mean, I really feel like you guys do a great job. You guys can be frontline providers. Um, and, and I often tell patients that, you know, physical therapists provide great care. Doctors can provide great care. Sometimes the combination of what we provide is better than either one of those alone. And Spot so on. I think sports docs and orthopedic docs and physical therapists make a great team. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. Dr. Holmes, thank you so much for your time. Tell us how to get in contact with you uh, if we're interested in, in finding out more about your practice and some of the procedures that you offer. Absolutely. A lot of ways to do it, Chris. Phone number 615-346-4036. 615-346-4036. ImpactSportsNashville.com. ImpactSportsNashville.com is a website. Uh, you can Google us on uh, Google us, of course, we come right up. We have Facebook page. You can search for us on Facebook. You can search for us on Instagram. So kind of like you, I try to put out some interesting stories, interesting cases, a little bit of trivia, uh, and then some tips on our uh, social media pages. That's a great way to kind of whet people's appetite of what we're doing and just kind of have some fun together online. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll drop all that information in the comments as always so that you can find out more about Dr. Holmes. Uh, thanks again, Dr. Holmes, for your time and uh, really appreciate it. Chris, man, you're awesome. I appreciate you so much. Take care. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Nashville Fitness Podcast. Don't forget, educate yourself, surround yourself with positivity, and take care of your body. It's the only one you get. 
Education is the key to a stronger and healthier you, one person and one community at a time. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, we would love for you to give us a five-star rating and leave us comments. If you want to find out more about us and how to maximize your health and performance, check out our clinic on Instagram at Momentum underscore Sports PT or at MomentumSportsPT.com.